0: Buenos dias. Good morning. The scripture for today is on the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, and chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. If you would like to follow along, it can be found on page 1 uh, in the pew Bibles in front of you. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it. I give every plant, every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Chapter two, verse four. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Uh, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had had, had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being.
1: To see you all here. Uh, for those of you who may not worship with us at High Point regularly, my name's is Devin. I'm one of the pastors here. I was supposed to be with you all last week, but as some of you uh, may have heard, my wife had a pretty bad fall and broke several of the bones in her foot. Uh, we finally got in to see the doctors this week, and she's uh, she's going to have surgery on Tuesday, and. It's gonna be a fairly significant foot surgery. They're, at, they're anticipating at least putting in a plate, maybe a pin. Uh, we'll see. So I do appreciate all your continued prayer. But I also wanna say for both me and for all my family that we have been just knocked over by the generosity of all of you at High Point. You flooded us with meals. You came, you cleaned our house. Messages checking in on us, knowing that you were praying for us. And we say a very sincere thank you. Uh, I've said it before from the pulpit, I'll say it again. Everybody should want to be a pastor at High Point. (laughs) Thank you all for caring for me and for my family. Um, We've got a bit more family business than usual this morning that I I just want to kind of cover, but I I don't want to rush through it because it's it's really important. Um, First, I want to just throw in another plug for the Living Room Sessions and for Engage and Equip. How many of you remember Living Room Sessions and Engage and Equip? Okay, put your hands down. How many of you, like me, have never been to one? Okay, I want to encourage all of you to prioritize them. Go, even small groups. Like if this is during a time when your small group would normally meet, I would encourage you not to meet that week with your small group in order to prioritize the living room session and engage and equip. Um, I'm actually really disappointed that I'm not gonna get to be there. I've been looking forward to it for weeks. Uh, Not only because they asked me to MC for engage and equip, uh, so, those of you who have been to a Gage and Equip will remember that the job of sort of holding the microphone and telling everybody what to do is a relatively low impact job by Gage and Equip standards. Um, but I was told that the MC was supposed to be funny. Like, this is really my only job, was to tell a joke and then tell everybody what to do. So, I mean, do you want to hear my joke? Yeah. Because I worked on it. Um, so, here it is. Like, they told me that my job as MC was to stand up and tell a joke, that this is, the, this is the purpose of the MC, and then they asked me to do it. That's a joke. <laughs> so the person who will be standing in will be better. Show up for them. Um, over the next few weeks, it's not just me and my family who are gonna be going through some fairly significant medical intervention. You've already heard today about Pastor Mike he's recovering from a very significant back surgery. He's been waiting for it for months. We're praying that this is seriously gonna improve his quality of life, but it's a major surgery with a major recovery time. At the same time, this coming Tuesday, my wife will have the surgery that I just mentioned. At the same time, a couple days later, uh, Pastor Nick's son will also be having a very significant leg surgery. He's gonna be spending time with his family. now you may have noticed that that takes up pretty much everybody with the title pastor, who's like a voted called pastor at this church. And if you're doing the math, you might think, oh my gosh, that really doesn't sound good. And you might start to feel a little bit of anxiety about what's what's gonna happen while all these pastors and their families are recovering. I just wanna let you know how low my anxiety is about the next few weeks and to encourage you all to de-stress if that's what you're feeling um, We are not a church That is a pastor-led church We don't, at this church Function according to like, Some sort of benevolent dictatorship That happens to be located in Pastor Nick's office We never have we are a church where we see the office of pastors being equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And there are many of you sitting here in this service right now, and there are even more who will show up at 11 o'clock who have been equipped for the work of the ministry and are already doing it. Some of you know these people, some of you don't, but they're, they're folks like Manohar, who stood up and prayed the pastoral prayer. There are folks like Frank Pekovic, who's you know, playing guitar. And I want to assure you that the pastoral work of High Point is in no way going to be diminished. Because the pastoral work of High Point isn't the work of human beings to begin with. It's the work work of all of us who are called and gifted by the Holy Spirit to feed the flock. So be encouraged. But I also want to say this is a great time for all of you to look again in the mirror, ask yourself where God has called you to serve, to take some stake of ownership in the work of High Point Church, and I'd say the first place to start would be uh, try attending the Wednesday night prayer meeting. Uh, God is not the author of sickness, God is not the author of injury, but nothing happens apart from his will, from his like permissive will, even if he's not the cause. So if I were the devil and I were looking at High Point Church, I would say, ha, 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 I've got three of the pastors on their back, what can I do now? And if I were God, I'd say, there you go again, old red legs. You think you got me. But this is the way providence works, is that the devil thinks he finds a foothold and an opening, and then he sticks his neck out, and God whops him on the head. So the way he's going to do that is by all of you, and especially the existing leaders of this church, stepping up and continuing to do what you're doing uh, for the glory of God and for the love of the people around you. Okay, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, your loving kindness to us, to all whom you have made. We bless you for our creation, our preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but especially for the redemption of the world in our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, today to take hold of the means of grace, to remember the hope of glory. Make our ears receptive to what you want to say to your church today. Let your good word go deep in our hearts and come forth to bear fruit. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Today we get to start a new series. Um, last year, we applied as High Point Church to a grant-funded program through uh, a large seminary in the Chicago area called Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Who, uh, th- this grant program existed to fund some local churches who were going to take some time in this calendar year to focus explicitly on the Christian understanding of creation, and especially what it means that human beings are created. And to think through what what theologians call theological anthropology, anthropology, what what we think about human beings, to to think about it not just from the biblical side of things, which is great, but to also intentionally bring what we believe about human beings as Christians into conversation with what scientists think and try to understand about human beings. It's awesome. We're one of six congregations that was funded to undertake this project. We're really grateful. Uh, I and many of the other members of the church who have already been able to be a part of it are really grateful for that funding. And uh, for the next six weeks, we're going to be going through some big topics, considering what it means to be human, thinking not only with scripture, but also bringing scripture into conversation with the sciences. And that, that can be tricky sometimes in church, to do Bible and science at the same time, because you know, for some of our history, uh, when, you, when you hear the phrase Christianity and science, what you're tempted to think is actually sounds more like faith versus reason or revelation versus human pride, and I just wanna get all the words straight right from the get-go. We're not doing Christianity versus science. We're doing Christianity and science, and that's actually a really Christian way to proceed if you look at the the historic, traditional way that Christians have always interacted with the wisdom of the world around them. Um, Even if Christians don't think of human wisdom in the same way that we think about revealed truth, We've never been the sort of people who denigrate human wisdom, because we believe that all wisdom comes from God, and that even in unredeemed human beings, the image of God remains intact, and that there is grace at work even among non-Christians. And if you value the whole work of God, as the church traditionally has, then you also value the work of God among people who don't yet know Him. Never mind the fact that there are tons of scientists who have always been confessing Christians from the earliest days of scientific method to the present. One of my favorite ways to think about this uh, comes from an early church father named Origen, and the way that he talked about the way we should interact with human wisdom was he looked at the Old Testament story of the Exodus and he talked about what happened when Israel finally came up out of Egypt. And they were supposed to go to their neighbors and ask them for articles of gold and silver and clothing. And so they plunder the Egyptians. This is Origen's basic way of thinking about the wisdom of the world outside the church. It's treasure for us to plunder. What happens is we go, we ask for it, we learn it, we we internalize it, we understand it. We never think of it at the same level as revealed truth, but there's good there. And then what we do is we carry it off into the wilderness in the presence of God, we melt it down, and we refashion it under the power of the Spirit into the tabernacle and make it fit to be used for the worship of God. That's the way you can think about Christianity and science. All right. So if our big question is not just Christianity and science, but it's specifically, what are human beings? What does it mean to be a human being? And where can the Bible and science say something productive to each other? Uh, I want to start with the sciences and maybe an unexpected place. I don't want to start with like anthropology or psychology, I want to start with geology. Any of you have to study geology in college? Yeah, a couple of hands. So geology basically is the science that looks at the Earth's physical structure, its substance, its history, and the forces and processes that act on it to make it what it is. Geology asks big questions like why are there mountains and why are they where they are and what's happening to them? I mean, like why are the Himalayas taller one year and shorter the next or the other way around? Where do continents come from and where are they headed and where did they start? Those are the kind of questions that geologists ask. And geologists also want to know, like, what did the Earth look like at a time when no human beings were writing down detailed measurements? So if you were a geologist, you'd have some sense of the physical processes that shape the world and also of the historical time periods under which the Earth went through seasons of change to look like what we have today. So you'd have big, fancy words that would really only make sense to other geologists. You'd talk about the Cambrian period and the Mesozoic era. And I mean, unless you study dinosaurs, those words probably mean nothing to you. I mean, they mean very little to me. But this is the point where geologists start to, uh, well, where the agreement falls away and where geologists today start to fight with each other. Because we're not talking right now about what time it was then, like in the Jurassic period. Right now, geologists are fighting about what to call the time we're living in right now. And there's two basic options. You could call it either the Holocene period, which means basically everything since the last Ice Age. Or there are a few kind of rogue minds out there who want to call it the Anthropocene period. Anthropos, human being, being the time we're living in right now is the time where the geological processes of the earth are so dominated by the presence of the human species that even if, like, a hundred million years from now the earth is here and something like a scientist were around to observe it, they would be able to look at our time and determine that the primary force acting on the earth was human beings. And that's the debate. Are human beings really that powerful? And I'm not a geologist, so I won't answer that question on the basis of geology, but this is the thing that's really interesting to me, is that even the the geologists who say, "No, no, 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 human beings are really powerful right now, but 100 million years is a really long time, hold your horses, even they would agree that right now, One of the primary, if not the dominant factor, exerting its influence on the structure of the Earth right now is human beings. You're gonna be able to see the records of our nuclear tests for however many generations. We changed the atmosphere just based on the industrial revolution and the way that we live our lives right now. Okay. So, if even the sciences recognize that there is something uniquely powerful about human beings amongst every other biological species on the planet today, what does that have to say to Christians? And that's where I want to turn back to Genesis. So what Augustina kindly read for us, thank you, Augustina, was two accounts of the creation of humanity. And Bible scholars sometimes like to fight about like, which one came first and which one is primary and who was reading what when. And there's a tendency to set those two stories in opposition to one another. I wanna show how actually those two stories are mutually reinforcing and they give us one coherent picture of what it means to be a human being. Uh, the key terms, as you may have noticed, are like image and likeness on one hand, and on the other hand, this notion of breath or spirit So let's start with the first one. I mean, what's this image likeness thing going on here? Uh, Really quickly, what you should take away from that term, first of all, is that those terms denote a sort of parent-child relationship between invisible God and visible human beings. If you were to skip ahead in Genesis a few chapters to Genesis chapter 5, you'd get to the story where uh, Genesis narrates the birth of Adam and Eve's son, Seth. And what, what it says in Genesis 5, 3, is that Seth is born in Adam's image and likeness. So there's some sort of parent-child thing going on here with image and likeness language, and I think any of us, you, you don't have to be a parent yourself, to to recognize that there is a special kind of resemblance that marks parents and children that they don't generally have with anybody else. It's why for most of my life, when I was still living in my parents' home, when I picked up the phone and said, hello, people said, hi, Brian. Or it's the reason why even now, even though my children are very small, people look at them and go, wow, I see so much of you in Isla, or I see so much of you. that's kind of a profound thought, to think that in the, in the fact that God is invisible, not known to us, yet he creates human beings in his image and likeness in such a way that if you really know the children, when you come to know the parents, you will immediately recognize some sort of genetic connection. And in this case, the genetic connection, I mean, genetic is maybe the wrong word because it's not biological. I'm looking for a metaphor that works here. But there is a connection between who God is and who we are that is recognizable when you know both the parent and the child. Okay, that was the first point. Human beings are, in some sense, God's children. A second point. What it means to be in God's image and likeness and to be his, uh, in his image and likeness in such a way that you bear his spirit is that you are the pointy end of the spear that executes God's providential, royal, kingly dominion over all of creation. And this is what I mean. So, put yourself in this scenario. Congratulations, you closed your eyes and when you opened them, you were the supreme Uncontested ruler of a global empire. Extends from pole to pole, hemisphere to hemisphere. You're it. But here's the catch. This empire is pre-industrial. The only technology you have is like basic writing on clay tablets, saddles on horses, some primitive ships. So, how do you go about, let's say hypothetically that you live in what's now Central Asia, how do you go about ruling this global empire from Central Asia? How do you make sure that people in what's now California have enough to eat? How do you make sure that crime isn't out of control in London? How do you make sure that folks in Beijing are actually obeying the laws and the pronouncements that you're dictating? I mean, there's a famous Chinese proverb uh, that says, the mountains are high and the emperor is far away. I.e., you know, it's okay what the emperor says way over there, but we're here in whatever providence however many thousands of miles away. We can govern our own affairs, thank you very much. This is in some sense the problem that Genesis creates. God, invisible, creates something visible. And he doesn't immediately go about making himself visible so that he can govern it and be recognized by the world that he's made. So how does God decide to go about governing and and managing and administering and tending to his good creation? Well, he creates human beings. Remember that uh, Genesis is written at a time of empires, and it's written in the language that made sense to folks who are familiar with these empires. And if you looked at terms like image and likeness in the empires that surrounded ancient Israel, this is what you'd find. First off, if you've ever studied ancient archeology, span you know that a ton of what survives are like images of kings and queens and royal figures and deities. I mean, we, we call them idols often, And if you look at the literary descriptions of what those images are supposed to do, what they basically are is they're ancient amplifiers for divine or royal presence. So if you're the king in Assyria and you wanna make sure that the provinces far away from you are still gonna respect you and still obey you, what you do is you go and you set up an image of yourself in that far-flung place after your priests and your sorcerers and whatever have gone through these rituals that are supposed to imbue that image with your spirit. So what an image is for an ancient king is a way to exert and extend your physical presence and your power and your dominance in a place where you are not physically. This, by the way, is one reason that God hates graven images. Because there's only one who gets to make the image of who God is and that's God himself. He's already made the image. So when human beings go about making graven images that they are gonna tell themselves and each other actually represent God, they're already way off because this is the irony. They themselves are the image of God. Where do they get off making another image? So now think back, human beings created in God's image and likeness, imbued with God's own breath, raised up. If you're used to walking around and seeing these images of kings and deities that are supposed to extend, amplify, the divine presence or the royal presence, then you're supposed to understand, oh my gosh, human beings are that point of contact between the created, formed, fashioned world and the mysterious, invisible, divine presence. Where human beings go, they carry the breath of God in them that creates and orchestrates life, and they're the ones who are responsible for tending the garden, for extending God's rule and bringing it to bear on all of creation. Human beings are powerful. In a sense, we've always lived in something like an Anthropocene era not because human beings themselves apart from God are anything significant, but because human beings are designed to be the bearers of God's spirit that brings the work and the power of God's spirit to bear on the whole world. Now, where do we go from there? I wanna make two points very, very briefly. The first one is that clearly whatever happens in the garden, it goes wrong, it goes wrong. Human beings don't necessarily lose uh, their identity in the image of God, but they lose access to the presence of God. They're driven away from the garden. And one of the consistent themes throughout scripture is that when sin comes, like the spirit withdraws. So you, you look at a penitential psalm like Psalm 51. I mean, what does David pray? Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Because I think most of us recognize, especially those of us who've been Christians for any length of time, you know what it's like to be walking with God in peaceful communion with Him. You sin, and then suddenly there's this sense of chilliness, of distance, of absence. The Spirit never leaves us, never abandons us. We never cease to truly be His children. I mean, if, if, it, were, if it were like the Spirit totally abandoned us, we would have no conviction for sin, because the Spirit is the one who comes and convicts us of sin. But there is still this sense of diminishment. This is what happens when uh, when Adam and Eve fall, but the big point is not just what happens when Adam and Eve fall. The big point is that Jesus comes and reconstitutes the image of God among us. If you were going to look at just one New Testament passage, I would point you to Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to read a significant chunk of it, and just pay attention for the big themes like creation, kingdom, spirit, dominance, This is Colossians 1, verses 10 to 18. Paul is praying that, and I quote, you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. I'm tempted just to do a Bible study on this passage because there's so much in there, and there's so much like creation language in there that we otherwise might, not, might just kind of blow right past if we didn't already have Genesis 1 ringing in our ears. But the first thing to notice is that the Son is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. Son, image, creation. We're not talking so much about Jesus as like the pre-incarnate Word. We're talking about Jesus, the incarnate human being who reconstitutes the image of God and who is the firstborn among many brethren, the way Romans 8 would put it. Second thing to consider, that Jesus, the Son of God and the image of God, is also the ruler of God's kingdom of light. That what Jesus is doing is, is rescuing people from the kingdom of darkness that was instituted when Adam and Eve handed over the keys to the kingdom. And Jesus, right now, ever since his incarnation, is ruling over the kingdom of light, the reconstitution and the advancement of God's original plan for the flourishing of all creation. The third thing to notice about Jesus is that he's the firstborn. Put yourself back in this mindset of monarchy. The firstborn, he's the one who's going to rule supreme. But that doesn't mean that the rest of us aren't second, third, fourth, fifth, billionth borns into the family of the kingdom of God and that we are not also called to rule and reign with him. We are also called as kings and priests. That's Revelation 1-4. I don't know that you could make a more profound statement about the power and the dignity of human nature than that, that Jesus, the Word incarnate, becomes fully human to rule providentially over all of creation, extending the power of God's Spirit for the flourishing of everything that God has made, and that when he did that, when he became fully human, he showed us the way to be ourselves. He showed us who we were meant to be a kingdom of priests to our God. This is why passages like Romans 5 contrast the first Adam and the second Adam, Adam and Christ. When Adam falls, destruction, corruption, sin, death come flooding in. But when Christ conquers, life and peace come to to be available for all of us. This is what true humanity looks like. If you wonder what a true human being is supposed to be, your archetype is Jesus. So think about him. When Jesus goes into the wilderness, he's tempted by the devil, he conquers. Adam falls, Israel in the wilderness stumbles, but Jesus conquers. Hebrews 1 tells us that because he conquered over sin, death, and the grave, God's put everything under his feet and he rules. And his kingdom is a paradoxical kingdom by our standards. Because, on the one hand, it's clear that the Bible is using some language that really sounds like king, empire language, image, and likeness. But Jesus' kingdom isn't the kingdom where he's going about trying to dominate, subjugate, keep people in line. What he says is that he's gentle and lowly, and that he lays aside his power and the prerogatives of divinity to take on the nature of a servant and he humbles himself to the point of death. Do you know what you would do if you were uh, an ancient empire and a city rebelled against your rule? This is how the Romans would do it. The second there was even like a whiff of dissension in the city, rebellion against the empire, the legions would come in, burn the city to the ground, sow the field with salt, and everyone who wasn't killed was exiled, and that was the end of that city. That's how Rome maintained its rule. Do you know how Jesus responded to people who rebelled against him and against his rule? He died for them. Romans 5, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's the measure of kingship. That's the measure of dominion and power. (laughs) Willingness to die, even on behalf of the subjects who are spitting in your face. So here's the beautiful and also kind of painful truth about then being an image bearer in this sort of Christian Anthropocene era is that right now, if you are in Christ, you bear God's image and like Christ who received the spirit at his baptism, you also bear the spirit of God. So that means that you also are called to rule, hooray you are actually called to be a king and a priest forever. That hypothetical scenario that I gave you about being an emperor seated somewhere in Central Asia, not actually that far-fetched when you look forward and hope in the resurrection of the dead. But the catch now isn't just that that empire would be pre-industrial, the catch now is that we're called to rule and reign in the way that our Lord Jesus rules and reigns. And if we want to be kings and priests to God, then we have to be like Jesus who humbles himself, takes on the form of a servant, and becomes obedient to the point of death on a cross for the sake of people who don't know him and don't love him yet. We have to lay aside our power and privilege so that other people will flourish. We have to lay down our claim to the rights that we think are ours and that will make our life easy and simple so that other people can be blessed by our refusal to exert our power and authority. In sum, what we're talking about here is the golden rule writ large. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, because that is the expression of divine kingship in the nature of God who desires good for all of us and for everything that he has made. This is why Jesus contrasts his kingdom so sharply, and like the Gospel of Matthew, with every other human kingdom that you've ever seen. one of the, I think one of the clearest examples of this, you could look at Matthew 20. This is where Jesus is kind of like everybody who's really paying attention to the story at this point ought to know that Jesus is on his way to die in Jerusalem. But the mother of James and John goes to Jesus and says, Look, when you enter into your kingdom, make sure that my sons get to sit on your left and on your right. And the disciples are kind of mad about this, right? Like, who do these guys think that they are? And Jesus takes him aside. And this is what he says. I'm going to start reading in Matthew 20, verse 25. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, as a ransom for many. So, if you're looking for one sort of big practical principle to take away from this sermon about what it means that you and I and all of us exist in the image of God, it's this. Take every opportunity to take up the place of servant. Look for the last place, completely unlike the kingdom of the world. Be unlike those sorts of leaders who feel like they've made it when they have someone to carry their briefcase for them. Instead, look for the, the full trash can and empty that. Love and serve the people around you, treating them as better than yourself. I mean, This is simple, but this is painful, and it, it's also not the sort of stuff that we associate with power, with dominance, with ruling, with privilege. But put yourself right now, just think about the people that you're in contact with on the most regular basis, your families, Say you're a teenager in the room. Go out of your way to bless your parents with simple acts of love. Empty the dishwasher. If you really want to give them a heart attack, sit down next to them on the couch and talk to them and tell them about your day. <laughs> Honor them. Watch God bless you. But seek that low place of service and concern. Parents, make it your mission to meet your children's needs before you even know that they arise. What's more, make it your mission to like, seek out and find your spouse's needs before you even know that, uh, that they're going to have a need. Look for the last place that makes the lives of the people around you easy because you've done the dirty work. In the church. We belong to a great church. I've been on the receiving end of your kindness so many times in the first six months that I've been here. I want that to be the normal experience for all of us here. But- Find the people who are hurting, who are in distress, the people like me and my family who have two kids under the age of four, and I work full time, and my wife is normally their full time caregiver, but she's going to be laid up for six weeks with surgery. Believe me, I am not the only person in that situation in this church. Find those folks and do for them what you've done for me fill their refrigerators, go clean their house. Find the folks also who are just lonely and hurting and don't feel like they have a community around them because sometimes love is spelled L-U-N-C-H. How about our city? Go give blood, fill up the blood banks, volunteer in a public school classroom that otherwise might have to shut down just because there aren't enough people there to, to help teachers do their job and to help keep kids safe. Okay. So if you've heard me so far, this is what you've heard. That science, even a science like geology that you wouldn't think normally would look directly at human beings, recognizes that there is a special sort of dominant role that human beings are playing in the natural world today. Exerting our power on the physical processes that are shaping the world around us. But geology measures this dominance by force. Geology measures our power by like the strength of our atomic weapons. Christianity also recognizes the dominant and ruling position of human beings among all other creation. We are set apart by the fact that we bear some sort of like filial relationship to who God is and by the fact that we as God's image are supposed to project God's power on the whole of the earth, to one another and to the creation around us. If I had another sermon to preach on this, it would be all about creation care. But the way that God rules his creation is he seeks to have it flourish and prosper. And in order to make it prosper, the way God goes about doing it is by doing the dirty work that doesn't feel good to him, but that's necessary for the flourishing of the good things that he has made. And that's our special dignity. And this is the goal of Christianity, growing into our full humanity that we see in Christ Jesus so that we become like little nuclear reactors of divine love that radiate everything around us, not with destruction and death, but with power of life. So, now by the power of the spirit of adoption by which you are truly made into God's children, go and do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, looking not to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. May the peace of Christ be with you all.